0: Hello and welcome to the very 113th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. A podcast about board games and for a bit in this episode, some role-playing games. My name is Tom Brewster, the newest member of the Shut Up and Sit Down. And with me is the old fart himself, <laughs> Quentin Smith. Okay, how can, are you doing? I today? feel <laughs> like
1: you can you can either get the name of the website, because I think you said the Shut Up and Sit Down there, which was amazing. Or you can insult me. I think if you do both, that reflects more poorly on you than on me. Uh, That's what I'm going to say. Also, describing me as an old fart is not a great lead, because what I wanted to say is that this is the first ever Shut Up and Sit Down podcast where every member on it is topless. Uh, Because before the recording, uh, England's in this absurd heatwave at the minute. (laughs) like it's so muggy i opened my window expected this morning to let a breeze in and just nothing happened like the, the temperature <laughs> outside my house was the same as inside which is awful uh how have you it's been
0: frighteningly still out there yeah it's just it and i always feel like we've got lots of uh, american viewers and listeners who are always saying like you know ah, oh, you you brits don't know the meaning of heat but like come on it's a stagnant heat it's like being inside a bread maker. Here's what Americans do
1: not understand. The reason English people complain about the weather all the time is because England is so temperate for like most of the mm. year, we do not have air conditioning, which is something that Americans <laughs> do not understand. Whatever the temperature is in England, that's the temperature in our house. That's it. <laughs> we just deal with it, America. We don't, you know, have a machine that pumps, you know, gas of a pleasurable temperature. No, we just say it's hot. We're going to be hot. Done. We're gonna take up our clothes to record the podcast, <laughs> yeah. and we're, it, we're gonna make
0: all of our listeners very uncomfortable with this imagery. Yep, it's gonna, two dudes hanging out. Just two dudes.
1: I mean, yeah. I, the, I mean, it's, this is probably. A, I don't know if I would be comfortable being topless with you. And this isn't a slight on you, but if we were recording this podcast oh, in no. the same room, it would be weird.
0: Oh no, yeah, definitely. No, I wouldn't. It, it's fine. The digital barrier is, you know, fully up, and it makes it all okay <laughs> for everyone involved.
1: It does. On this uh, sweltering episode, we are going to be talking about Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, the game that says, hey, what if Gloomhaven was smaller? I'm going to be talking about Team 3, a party game that asks you and your friends to build a small structure out of children's building blocks and it's one of the hardest games I've played all year. We're going to be talking about Hakko Honor, a game that asks, what if you wanted to be a haunted Japanese woman stuck in a box. We're going to be talking about Anomaly, a game that asks what would happen if students accidentally brought an interdimensional being that was very hungry into their space station and no one knew how to kill it. Uh, Anomaly is a weird game to describe. It's very strange. It's very strange. We're going to be talking about Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, a game about writing down the diary of a thousand-year-old vampire. And we're going to be talking about Artifact, a game that asks wouldn't you like to roleplay as a musical instrument or a deck of cards, rather than a boring person.
0: Quins, everyone's talking about Gloomhaven 2, Jaws of the Lion Edition. It's not Frosthaven, it's small.
1: (laughs) Yes, so let me get this straight. Gloomhaven, famously one of the most big, exciting fantasy games in the world. And now they've made it smaller. Is it is it also less exciting?
0: It's got all the excitement of Gloomhaven in a smaller box. Okay, that sounds... that's sounds... That's a pull quote for <laughs> Mr. Mr. Isaac Childress.
1: <laughs> I, but so it's also got a book though, right? Talk, talk me through yes. what Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion really is.
0: So Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion is they've taken big old Gloomhaven and they've crunched it down into a box that is half the size, but probably about the same weight. It's a dense little box full of gloomhaven stuff it's basically taking the hundred mission uh or so i don't know how many there end up being in in base game gloomhaven uh and taking it and compacting it down into a sort of 30 mission mini kind of adventure and i I, you know i say mini adventure it's still probably more missions that i'm actually going to play
1: (laughs) it's probably still more missions than the average board game right
0: yeah right um, but it's taken, so there's, I think there's like 16 characters in original Gloomhaven. streamlined that to four. It's taken like all the, like there's, there were tons of monsters and now there's just sort of a select few. And the biggest change is that they've replaced the tiles with a scenario book that you'll flip through and find, uh, missions. Like you'll go through that book, turning the page each time to do a new mission. All the tiles are there and you put your little figures and the standees into the book itself.
1: Oh, so there's like, does that mean there's dramatically less setup because setting up the board is just as simple as turning a page
0: well one can assume uh because i don't really know because i never played actual gloomhaven in the box i only played it digitally where there's obviously no setup oh no this is like
1: existence (laughs) the barriers between the real and the virtual are starting to come down it's madness i mean i would I, I mean, I assume that there's a whole lot
0: less setup, but there's still a lot of setup and teardown. Like people saying like, oh, it's so breezy to set up are talking out of their <laughs> bottoms. It's, <laughs> it's like by comparison, sure, like it takes, you know, only 25 minutes to set up and tear oh, down, wow. whereas your average board game takes like five.
1: Is that an exaggeration? I genuinely don't know
0: you know what, I'll time it and I'll put a little note into the podcast next time I play for exactly how many minutes and seconds it took me to set up and tear down Jaws of the Lion
1: yeah.
0: uh, in between amble chit chat with the other people playing. Um, but the the scenario book, I think there's people clamoring for it to be like in Frosthaven. I don't know if that's possible at this stage in Frosthaven's development, but people are, are really gelling with it. And, you know, I agree. I think that the scenario book is a wonderful addition to like any game well like any kind of dungeon crawler sure because it reduces the kind of the clunky like the sheer amount of box space you need for those you know the tiles and the punch board and stuff is infinitely reduced by having this nice kind of svelte book that has all of the like scenario text um on it and i think that the thing i like about it the most is the fact that it really ties into the fact that gloomhaven draws the lion is designed to be a new way into the game for people that are new to gloomhaven and it acts as a kind of it has a fantastic tutorial system built into that book
1: oh clever
0: yeah so the first five scenarios are like the intro scenarios that you'll play through and each one drip feeds new mechanics almost legacy style into your gloomhaven experience it's like hey you've played gloomhaven for one mission now you get to learn about jumping or something (laughs) like that um, and they're kind of adding little mechanics, but the, the book itself has these little blue kind of text boxes on certain spaces where they're going, remember, like monsters will spawn at this location or like, remember like that kind of thing, like a little, you know, like an Isaac Childress clippy telling you about all the rules. <laughs> and honestly, it made the experience of teaching and learning, like learning the game, teaching it to new players so much easier. Well, I'd imagine than what I've heard Gloomhaven's base game rules experience. Is like
1: yeah i mean this is the funny thing about gloomhaven you know i think when isaac children designed it it was meant to be this huge dorky big box dungeon crawling experience but now the company is rapidly having to adapt to the reality that it's so popular now more and more people want to play it and how normie is going to play gloomhaven it's insane <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: I, and i think that it does do a really excellent job of getting new players into it without compromising on what people love which is it's really difficult
1: (laughs) okay i i i want to know before we get into difficulty because does it have four new characters and if so who are the characters and if yes who was your character
0: I don't know if it has entirely new characters. This is another Tom comes in and does a little ninja edit of the podcast to go. (laughs) I was wrong. Um, But the new characters that we have opened, uh, because I've played it once. I played the first few scenarios with just me and my partner. And then we added a third player in for one of the most recent ones and then took him out for the next one, which felt (laughs) quite mean. Um, But, you know, we're moving out. It's fine. But I uh, picked the Quattrall, I think that's right, Demolitionist whose whole thing is blowing up obstacles. Um, A lot of their movements involve destroying obstacles and then getting bonuses from destruction. So it's kind of like this spiral of chaos where (laughs) you're slowly leveling the map to one flat surface and gaining lots of bonuses for doing so. Wow, um, which is a pretty nice, unique mechanic. But I feel like I'm going to be scuppered if there aren't any obstacles to blow up.
1: <laughs> I mean, this um, sounds like design 101. If they've put, because I don't think a demolitionist is in the base game. And, mm. Oh gosh, you know what? Why am I speaking so confidently <laughs> as someone who's only absorbed Gloomhaven through osmosis over the last five <laughs> years? Uh, but it seems like if there's a demolitionist in the box, there's going to be obstacles for them to blow up. Come on, Isaac. Yeah,
0: there have been. There've been some. There's some good obstacles. It has been. There've been moments when I've gone like, ah, if only I was right next to a big stalagmite that I could detonate, and then I'd be able to do a really cool turn. <laughs> Um, So I'm sure there'll be more of those. We've got the, I think they're called the Red Guard or something, who has, they're kind of focused around shielding and defending and healing, but also putting out lots of damage and doing stuff with fire magic, I think. I don't really know, I'm sort of just eyeing that character across the table. And then there's the Hatchet, uh, who, when we played Gloomhaven on our last stream, uh, Matt picked the hatchet because it's very bloodborne. Oh really? Um they're kind of a hunter with like throwing axes and stuff and they have this very cool move where one of their axes is their favorite and it does extra damage when you when you whack a monster with it from across <laughs> the room. It's very gamer. It's quite... A
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I like the sound of the demolitions expert because you mentioned you'd played Descent on the last podcast and Descent was the first board game that made me realise that a lot of these dungeon crawling games are really kind of simulating SWAT teams where the heroes <laughs> sure. burst in through the door and have to like move through clearing rooms one after another but instead of, you know, using whatever police hardware you have a magic axe.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I don't know by what means my person is demolishing stuff. Um, but it's definitely true that like there's those opening turns of the demolitionist feel really good when you sort of like bust into a room like blow up an obstacle then use like the extra bonus you get to like s- like slam someone against a wall that's one of the abilities is like extra damage if someone's next to a wall which is like a very evocative piece of imagery
1: <laughs> oh um, yeah oh that's really nice yeah. yeah
0: and there's there's lots of like lovely little uh bits like that and one thing i should mention as well is that there's a really nice uh, moment, you know, when I was saying about that blue text that's on the book itself that shows you um, new mechanics and stuff as they crop up like a kind of tutorial, that goes for the cards as well. So the first six cards you have or, or eight cards in your hand all have these blue text boxes that tell you exactly what that card does. So it says like, you know, attack three, move two, and it will be like the blue box says, you know, you will do three damage base and draw an attack modifier, and then you will move three, but not through difficulty. You know, it has like a whole, like it explains each individual mechanic. And those A those a cards, the ones that the first tutorial cards that you get, you scr- like, you ditch them straight away and you have this one mission where suddenly all the cards you knew that used to be attack three, move two, are now attack three, but only if you destroy an obstacle and move two and pass yourself <laughs> if you're next to two enemies. Which is such, like, they take the floor out from under you in such a wonderful way.
1: <laughs> that's such a funny way to get people playing Gloomhaven. Because, like you say, it's a game that's defined by being hard. So you give a player yeah. a hand of cards and goes, this is how you play. And they go, oh, cool. I know how to play now. And you go, well, kind of. Those aren't your real cards here. Take these <laughs> awful, take these- flimsy... <laughs> <laughs> like compromised abilities
0: yeah absolutely and and then they start adding in like the elements and it's like oh but i can only do this if fire
1: magic is waning and it's like
0: ah, what's happened to what's happened to my nice hand of just hit three move two
1: We had a discussion on the site recently where Matt and I were figuring out um, how we should divvy up between the team, review copies of like Gloomhaven and Pandemic Legacy Season 3, which is also coming out this year. And we decided that we would stick to kind of areas we were sort of experts in so that if I because I reviewed Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and 2, I'll do Season 3 because then at least there's a degree of consistency that our audience can expect. Um, but now I feel bad because I'm hearing you talk about Jaws of the Lion. You sound so excited. And just yesterday, I was like, Matt, you should review Jaws of the Lion. Did I take it out of your jaws, Tom? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Who knows? Uh, oh, I mean, no. I,
0: I'm I'm gonna struggle to get any reviews out uh, as we've discussed previously in middle of uh, moving house. But you know, I think that it's such a great two-player game that I am quite passionate about delivering some kind of review i mean i'm sure i'll contribute to matt's review of it um yeah. in the end and i'm keen to play some with matt on stream the last stream was wonderful it was a really we did we did get absolutely demolished uh in uh in the gloomhaven stream that was where um the difficulty really came to the fore um because i'd i played the first few missions matt hadn't played any and i was like you know the first ones are, are, are quite easy well let's skip to mission four and we skipped to <laughs> mission four And got demolished but it did mean that then when i then played it with my what is now my gloomhaven group we then absolutely like breezed through the scenario because i knew all the all the tricks from the (laughs) gloomhaven stream so maybe matt's review will end up being really negative because he'll be like oh you know it's really difficult i wish i got second attempts at some of these scenarios and And you yeah
1: (laughs) you're like some kind of cross between an adventurer and an insider trader
0: yeah absolutely taking the the review out of the jaws of matt you already made that joke
1: nailed it <laughs> uh is that a sting yeah sure a sting there. <laughs>
0: oh god um, i feel like i got all i wanted to across like i didn't want to talk too much about it because there's an element of like we really have talked about it like so many times and it's like yeah the combat is good it is fun it's a big game and it's like cool
1: like, yeah it feels like the um the next time to talk about them is when you Someone, someone has played them enough to be like, okay, here's what I think. As well, this is why we kind of need Matt because it's like, you need to get to the end of it. To, mm. it's a really boring question. But as a review outlet, the thing we need to answer is which Gloomhaven should you buy, and yeah. then the only way you know that is by playing like a bunch of it. But and no, you know, we d-
0: we we could, you know, I mean, this is like a bit of like a Lucy outtake bit. but We could just splice this in where I really think that um Jaws of the Lion. I can't see myself playing. Massive big box Gloomhaven over Jaws of the Lion, and maybe that even extends to Frost Haven, because these games are so big. Like it's, I'm already struggling, and you know, like my job is now as strange as it may be to review board games, and I'm struggling to get a group consistently to play Jaws of the Lion, and the idea of having to do it thirty times, getting that group together, and the stress <laughs> of organizing that group is, you know is quite a lot and imagining doing that a hundred times for gloomhaven like you're never going to see the end but matt's raised the point that the point isn't to see the end but there is definitely a degree of satisfaction with playing something like jaws line which looks like it's going to kind of deliver quite a like a mini series a kind of quite a nice tight mystery there's already lots of like mysteries going on and we're trying to figure out get to the bottom of it by bashing cultists in the head (laughs) with big rocks I think that that's going to offer a more satisfying experience and it's going to be cheaper and you're not going to have that, like, huge setup and teardown. So my money is on Jaws of the Lion, I think.
1: Wicked. Uh... (laughs) Oh, no. I've just seen what game I have to talk about on the podcast next. Uh, So this is definitely... It's not me scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of what I've played to have games to talk about on the podcast. It's not that. But it is close. So... (laughs) So Team 3 is a party game which I first played at the UK Games Expo last year and really enjoyed. Um, right, Tom, picture this, okay? You've picturing. got some plastic uh, building blocks of different shapes, like there's an L shape and like a, all kinds of little Tetris things, but they're three-dimensional pieces of plastic like you would give to a toddler, okay? Mm-hmm. okay? Now, what we have in Team 3 is a three-player cooperative game, but ideally you want to play with like six so that the two teams can race each other. There are three roles you can be on the team, right one person has to um, assemble these plastic building blocks into a small structure that is printed on a card so Mm. imagine you know you flip a card and you see like a little house type thing so you need to put this block here as the foundation and this block here so that you build up a perfect shape
0: right you with me so far (laughs) don't worry quins i can like i've got toddler
1: reason (laughs) toddler level object permanence i I can
0: put blocks together in my brain
1: Okay, great. So here's the problem, though. If you're doing that job on your team, you cannot open your eyes. Okay. Okay.
0: Yes. Now,
1: worse... So Obviously, you couldn't look at the card even if you wanted to because you are functionally blind. Um, there is one person on the team who will, however, be looking at the card and telling you, not you what to do because the person who can look at the cards isn't allowed to speak. Oh, my goodness. The third okay. person on the team is... Um, is allowed to speak and see everything, but they can't see the card and they can't touch the tokens. So what this then means, is, oh, in order no. to assemble the structure, no, no, one no, person no, no. sees the... Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> one person sees the card and has to use body language to gesture. Like if I put my one of my arms vertically up and one of my arms horizontally, that's obviously an L. Or alternatively, you could make an L with your thumb and index finger. Um, so that you're going L. And then, you know, you might sort of put, lower the L to indicate to the middle member of the team, L on the bottom lying yes. flat, and then that middle member of the team has to see you doing all this body language and tell the blind person, okay, find the L with your hands, now put it on the, no, no, rotate it, rota- put it down, put it down, put it down, lie it flat. Um, and so it's just this completely hilarious, utterly charming um, kind of party game, which, I only didn't talk about on the podcast for a year because, you know, lots of board games come out. And frankly, Team 3 is a game that I really like. You know, I happily took a review copy. I think I have it in my house somewhere, Mm. but it didn't, there wasn't enough meat on the bones for us to like review it or talk about it earnestly. But that is not to take away from the fact that it is an absolutely hilarious game. It's kind of that perfect balance in a party game of like, it's so stupid and very funny, not just to people watching, but to the people playing everyone's laughing the whole time because you're also all getting aggravated with each other for different reasons (laughs) like if i do body language and you misinterpret it and you tell the third person on the team to pick up a block that is not the next block they should pick up the 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 then communication chain for that first player who cannot speak to tell everybody else in the team that they're (laughs) wrong and to stop is like you know visible frustration which is just side-splittingly but also you know it's it's that doesn't take away from the fact that it is a completely reasonable challenge which you can get good at and which if you know you've got a full six players and you beat the other team you're like yes you know we achieved something oh wait hold on. Uh, so it's not just a co-op game there are two teams well so what you get <laughs> if you buy one box of team 3 is you get a box full of shapes and then you can play it and i think you can time yourself to try and sort of finish missions under par sure. which is pretty fun but um, there is a, the, the box design is really quite cute. There is a, a neon pink and a neon green box, which have mm-hmm. this lovely sort of, you know, the, the monkeys that are like, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. Right, sure. Th- them on the front, which is quite cute. Um, cute. And basically the pink and green versions each have different mini expansions in. Um, I don't know what the expansions are, but the official site says the team three pink expansion is called dimension tension and the green oh. box ha- and the green box has something called mind merge. <laughs> um, I think mind merge is where there's like two players in one of the three roles and they have to oh, work no. together. No, no, yeah no, so no. it's like yeah it's it's good oh, goodness gracious um, but uh, yes, yeah, so the idea is that if you want to play with six, you don't just have to buy two copies of the game. you can buy the pink and green copies and then at least. Um, not only do all the components have a different color for each team, but also then now you have more expansions than someone would have normally So it's a cute right. way of saying we're gonna sell this for cheap for a, as a three-player game But if you want to buy both then just play with more people the options there uh, So that's team three if you want to google it and I would recommend you do it because it's a really fun little thing It is one word. So it is T E A M the number three with no spaces
0: There's um, one thing that I had, I've had in my head this entire time, but when you were saying that you can play it to like get under par and get like a good score and be good at it and get better at it, it Mm -hmm. really made me think that like some absolute bastard is going to make (laughs) this into a job interview game. And like- (laughs) Oh goodness gracious. We're gonna do a small team building exercise and I'll bring out this box and you know, the the one person in the know in the room will go, oh God. (laughs) This oh, is it's the like end.
1: it's like when um, I, I do watch a lot of Korean game shows, and the amount of times that board games that I've played, which have just had the serial numbers filed off and are presented as like <laughs> wacky <laughs> mini game, appear on TV, it's like, hey, that's Dixit. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you apparently. the Dixit. I know. Do you know? Because uh, you're quite new to the games industry, Tom. Do you know that there's like this interesting thing where you cannot copyright game mechanics? And the whole reason no. that games don't... Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, legally speaking. Um, you can't, There is no... Uh, when games first started coming out at the end of the 20th century, um, there was obviously decisions had to be made of like, to what extent is a game mechanic someone's intellectual property? And the courts decided like, no, that can never happen. So the only reason that games don't rip each other off more, especially in the board game space, is because it's just not done. It would be rude. It, it's like you'd, make, you'd become persona non grata. But legally speaking, if you want to make, you know... Uh, Brass, like Brighton or whatever, um, and th- it's it would be. Uh, I'm I'm getting into legal trouble here, but I think it's quite doable. This
0: is this is a call to arms for anyone uh, listening to the podcast. Uh, make make more copies of brass. <laughs>
1: it's like, oh wow! Go
0: out. We want brass everywhere.
1: You know what? We've been relying on board game designers to make games like idiots <laughs> when we could have just been encouraging our audience to copy stuff. So you've heard Don't it here do first. Don't do that. No, no, no. Even as a next joke. Podcast, no,
0: the next podcast is no. only games made by listeners. <laughs> that is. Hey, that's not, actually quite a good. That's idea. Not, not a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> similarly in the kind of territory of games that I found interesting but not enough to like really flesh out maybe mm-hmm. uh I've been playing well I played a while ago a couple games of Hako Ona I'm sorry if that is not the right way to pronounce it um it is published by WizKids it's kind of a cool concept for a game doesn't really hold up but I think it's interesting to talk about uh, nonetheless in Hako Ona uh it is a haunted house game where one player is going to play as the titular hacker on art which i think translates roughly to woman in a box um that's (laughs) haunting a spooky haunted house and the rest of you play as like people that are in that house and don't want to be in the house any longer um the rule book had a lot of promise that got me kind of quite excited um it's a kind of hide and seek game almost where players are sort of stumbling around this mansion and as the monster you're not a direct threat you're literally like i guess it makes more sense if you can visualize the game as it kind of has a betrayal at house on the hill style room layout tile room layout sort of thing mm-hmm. in those rooms you have face down tiles which are going to be items that will help you deal with uh the hacker honor um, the way that you win the game, there's three different kind of paths to victory. Uh, you can kill, escape, or lay to rest, which is like the David Lynch version of like snog, marry, avoid or something. That I say <laughs> out loud. So the players are trying to find these certain items that will let them do those separate things. So to kill the hacker, you'll need. They've got like a weakness that's randomly generated, and you have to find like the item that's their weakness and discover what it is. And then like escaping is like you've got to go to the safe and you've got to find the keys, and these are all items you've got to find. Um, the problem is, is that the our their tile is also one of these item tiles. And you'll be moving around the map when everyone has closed their eyes, shuffling around the tiles and putting yourself where an item previously was.
1: Oh, wait. So the, your, this woman in the box, Ghost, who one person is playing, is kind of moving from box to box in the house?
0: Yeah, they're moving from, like, place, you know, place that someone's going to search to place someone's going to search. So they're trying to look for a, an item, but they're like, oh, but... Maybe the Hakawaana knows that I wanna go in that room and search there and they've put themselves in the like toolkit and then they're gonna burst out and kill me. What happens when someone finds the woman in the box? They die instantly. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I, this is like an absolutely electric mechanic. I was like, that's gonna create so much tension because it has that thing where the table talk, where players are gonna be talking to each other. Oh, I might go here, I might go here, is being listened to by the Hakawaana who's just sitting there thinking about where they're going to move next. And that's compounded with the fact that another cool mechanic that I thought would be really interesting, <laughs> I'm, t- I'm kind of burying the lead here, <laughs> but I thought would be interesting, um, was that the way that the hacker on our moves, it's not like the players take their turn and the hacker on our takes their turn. The players will keep taking turns for as long as they cannot topple the dexterity tower. There is a small piece of cardboard, which uh, the, on a player's turn, they'll put these noise discs on top of, stacking them up each turn. But the the piece of cardboard itself has like a little a bevel on it so nothing can be laid perfectly flat and you think you're putting one you're putting discs like (laughs) (laughs) like you're putting uh wood discs that that are smooth and shiny on top of each other on top of an uneven surface right so it's like a horrible jenga tower and then on the harder difficulties some of those uh discs have bevels on them as well so it's like you're sticking like You're trying to build a tower out of, like, slippery little pieces of wood, and they're going to topple. And when they topple, the Hakawana takes their turn. Um, Okay. And at that point, every player closes their eyes, and Hakawana can, like, move by, like, displacing items and putting themselves in those places. All of this, I'm sure you're thinking, this sounds super exciting.
1: I would play this game.
0: Yes. And I would play it too, once... <laughs> uh, but For, like, to be excited about those systems and then to kind of be lightly disappointed by them, perhaps. Right. The yeah, Dexterity sure. Tower doesn't work at all. Like, it's impossible to balance more than one of those discs on top of each other. Like, we literally spent a good 20 minutes just trying to achieve, like, getting to turn three, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it felt like a bit of a fall conclusion that it's going to fall. And there's an alternative in the box where you use these cards. It's like you keep drawing cards from a deck and they go from like one to like nine or something. And when you get over a certain value on the cards, the one R takes their turn, which felt like kind of exciting, but not really. It's like random when the R is going to take their turn, which is quite tense. But ultimately that dexterity style was so vivid as like a thing that we wanted to work. that The fact that we had to use an alternative was kind of disappointing.
1: Absolutely. Something you paid for as well. Was it tense I... at least? <laughs> it was...
0: No, not really. Right, yeah. Like, because there's... I wanted it to be really tense, but what happened in our game was that the human players just very quickly found the way to like kill the R, and it just ended. It felt like a game that just like had so much promise, but ultimately was over so quickly and we didn't get to see half the systems in the game. And we played oh, wow. it again and we had a similar situation where just like they managed to find the route to kill the Hakawana like instantly. And there's so many spaces that you can be on the board that it's just unlikely that they're going to find you. Like, even if you put themselves directly in their path, players are always going to be, like, moving around and, like, looking for other things. And it's really hard to predict where they're going to go on any given turn.
1: Okay, my last question then. Is it at least scary to have a woman that lives in a box? Like, as, as, as themes go for horror games, that is quite unsettling.
0: And the cover is, like, yes, it is unsettling. The cover is, is really quite eerie it's got a very like the ring like the grudge style like creepy lady looking like yeah that's (laughs) that's the noise i imagine she'd make and and the the flavor text is really quite gruesome as well there's lots of like snapping bones and like trying to compress into like a confined space and and, you know the game doesn't give you so many tiles that it's like a huge open mansion it does feel kind of claustrophobic there's so many items in each room but like ultimately like earlier i actually compared the tile setup to betrayal at house on the hill and i could imagine that a game like this played multiple times would feel a bit like betrayal where that game has like some real highs when you'll have a haunt that's like fantastic and fascinating and really funny mm-hmm. and tense or scary or anything in between and some that just fall completely flat and the rules don't really quite make sense
1: i would pay upwards of 50 pounds for a because they've done two boxes of betrayal right the, with the original one which has i think 50 haunts is that right mm-hmm. i and think then so the, Maybe. And then they've done that expansion box, which has another 50 haunts written by different people. Mm. Now there's all the haunts from the legacy edition of Betrayal on the House on the Hill as well. So that's like something like 120 haunts total. I would pay (laughs) £50 for a box that contained the 10 best ones. Like, don't give me... I'm not going to play Betrayal 50 times. Give me 10 (laughs) good ones. It's kind of like what you're talking about with Jaws of the Lion. It's just give me something small and, you know, like that works.
0: Yeah. I think that, like, Betrayal... This is kind of a tangent, but Betrayal... And, and similar games, like, kind of, the, the promise isn't that you're going to play 50 Haunts, it's that you definitely will have a random one each time, I guess. I suppose, um, yes. But, like, ultimately, like, that, that means to, like, like, that leads to, like, dips in quality. But I guess, like, it's unfair to even compare them, because I think that one as a base experience, just doesn't really work. Um, yes. It's fascinating, and, and, and I was so excited for it, because I think it was such a cool and interesting theme for a game. That alone, yeah, made me want to play it straight away.
1: WizKids have been uh, really deserves some kudos for uh, publishing some absolutely fascinating stuff. I think Hakawana came from a Japanese designer, Japanese theme. It plays like nothing we've heard of. You know, more of that kind of thing from WizKids, even if Hakawana isn't necessarily it. You
0: know what mm. I mean? I, I wonder as well, because I think it's, I, I've, I've got written in like a little notes thing here that I, that I took. And this might be wrong again, like Tom's addendum might come in and be like, fuck, check. <laughs> um, but it's apparently like it's the fourth and now an english edition of a japanese game obviously and they've added like new cards and the cards felt kind of like bloat and unnecessary so i wonder if right at its core there's like one of those primo betrayal haunts in this box you know like at the very core of the game yeah
1: maybe the very first edition had components where the dexterity element worked as well
0: yeah or or had yeah like had an element where the game was literally like one of these things could have the hacker on an it and like that's scary and you have one objective rather than three ways to like deal with it and like that's it and i think that that on its own and if it was like a 15 quid like tense little kind of puzzly deduction box with kind of horror elements could work really well but as it is it feels like one of like it almost feels like one of the more recent uh like resident evil 7 or something right like one of the more right. recent resi pc games where it's like kind of schlocky and like there's like a lot of overblown stuff when really like the simple core terror would work a lot better, maybe.
1: Yeah, starts getting away from itself, right? Well, yeah, um, perhaps. If, do you have anything else to say before we move on to another spooky game about a monster hiding from you?
0: You know what? I'm more excited to... Yeah, It says something about Hakuna. I'm more excited to learn about the next spooky monster hiding game.
1: Okay, so um, <laughs> I'm glad we saved this for almost last because I'm really, really excited to talk about a game called Anomaly. So this is from uh, the French designer who made Decrypto, which is interesting um, because Decrypto is a beloved, absolutely phenomenal party game. Anomaly it's nothing like Decrypto. This <laughs> is a game for up to four players. But before we proceed, um, in Shut Up and Sit Down's quite extensive playtesting of Anomaly, because we were thinking of doing a video review of this, we thought this game was a hidden gem. It was revealed that actually it only really works with four players. Um, with two or three, the systems do not hinge together. But A four-player game of this that I played was one of my highlights of all of the board games I played last year. So what Anomaly is, is a sort of kind of like a science fiction movie um, where a bunch of students have opened some kind of portal to some kind of otherworldly being in a space station. Um, it's like a, the, a dissertation gone wrong, right? So if you, I'm going to assume for the duration of this whole segment, you're playing it with four players, right? So you've got three players who are on a team, playing students, who when the game starts, you've got to imagine all the lights go out in the space station, they all scramble behind cabinets, and then a fourth player who is the anomaly has has now appeared in the space station, and it's some kind of weird nebulous, non-half-existent, phase-y thing, um, you know. Basically, if I was going to be like cheesy, I'd call it a space ghost. Um, And the space ghost has to feed every turn. Uh, But wait, it gets worse. The radiation core in the middle of the space station is leaking, which in a battle royale style is making the map smaller and smaller every round as more and more radiation leaks into various spaces in the space station. So uh, the game is won quite simply by a health track. If uh, the anomaly is attacked enough by the students and its health goes down, 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 and it hits the middle of the board, um, the anomaly is gone and the students win. But all the students share health. And if the anomaly hits or eats or electrifies or irradiates or does all this other fun <laughs> stuff, any student, then their team's health goes down. But um, I've done a classic bit of down, so burying the lead here. This is a hidden movement game. But unusually for a hidden movement game, or well, relatively unusually, everyone is hidden. And more than that, the students who are all on the same team do not know where one another are. The space station isn't sprawling. This isn't like Fury of Dracula, where you might lose track of a player for the better part of an hour and a half. Um, (laughs) Someone's gonna get found probably once every 10 minutes and it's gonna be awful. But the way the game works at its simplest is that you use kind of different abilities and different bits of logic in the game to try and deduce where somebody is. But mostly where somebody is, is not to do with like logic deduction, Um, but in the manner of the very best hidden movement games, Figuring out where someone is is trying to second guess what they want. So for a, like you know, uh, one example, the anomaly has to feed every turn or it loses health. Now, it can feed on a student, ideally, but there's also little fuel canisters around the map. So for the students, you might end up asking questions like, well, the anomaly probably doesn't know where we are, which means it probably went to a fuel tank, which means it probably went to that fuel tank, which means I'm going to fire my gun into that sector and the whole team goes because firing a gun is like an enormous rare thing and then the whole team of students will freeze up look at the anomaly and go are you in that sector and the anomaly says no and then all the students have a complete (laughs) meltdown because not only that means that if the anomaly isn't where the fuel tank is that means it probably is where a student is and it's going to feed in a student and the anomaly says I feed in a student and all the students go ah um It is full of a lot of really, really, really nice theming. First off, I should have said this earlier, it's gorgeous to look at. It's got this lovely, dark, but very neon board. The art on all the cards is really evocative. The students, the sort of cards that they get, that have things like, you know, stun guns and bullets, and, you know, they can inject themselves with adrenaline, all this funny stuff. But then one (laughs) of the interesting... (laughs) Yeah, injecting yourself, hilarious. Um, But one of the interesting mechanics in the game is that within this kind of sci-fi wrapper you have this um, idea that the anomaly is feeding off energy that the students are putting out into the um, space. This interdimensional being is somehow becoming more tangible and dangerous as the students, you know, shoot it and zap it and stuff. So if a student plays a card for its um, ability, rather than just to move or try and deduce what the anomaly is, so that might mean, you know, attacking with a stun gun or getting a double attack or firing a gun or using a machine, Um, whether that ability hits or not, so you might say, okay, I'm in this space, I'm going to try and club the anomaly with a... With a bat, and then the anomaly <laughs> says whether the anomaly is in that space with you or whether it's not. Um, that card you used or tried to use, then you turn it upside down and goes to, it goes to the anomaly because on the upside down of bit of every card, you have a different piece of art showing what that card means for the am- anomaly. So in missing with the electrical baton, you've now given the anomaly a card that is going to give it control over the space, the electronics of the space station, um, and which. Also, I will describe it because it's a mechanic I really like. Whenever the anomaly plays one of these sort of electricity flare-up cards, they can put um, sort of electricity tokens around the space station, which don't do anything until the anomaly pops them. So there's this funny thing where if there's like one space on the board with an electricity token, a student might feel quite safe secretly moving into that space because probably what the anomaly is going to do is put down loads of electricity tokens so they can pop Mm. them all at once and definitely hit all the students. So yeah that's kind of a rough overview of Anomaly and the reason it was so exciting and so much fun for me is not just because with the 4-4 players. this design can absolutely sing, not just because it's innovative but because hidden movement games usually have this stop-start structure where you either don't know where someone, you know, the hidden player is. And that's sort of like a little frustrating at times, or you do know where they are, at which point the entire game stops working because it's a hidden movement game and no one's hidden. Whereas what anomaly does in hiding everybody, even if someone gets found, there's in with a full four players, there's still at least like, even if there's a melee conflict where the anomaly feeds on someone. And if that's successful, that means you definitely know both where the anomaly is and where a student is. There are still two students who are hidden. There's still so much misinformation and confusion in the game. But mostly I think what powers Anomaly is the way that when a team, whether it's the Anomaly or the students, attacks something, when they go, okay, we're going to attack this space, no one around the table knows if that was successful until that player goes, okay, you got me or not. And the game is so full of that crowning moment in hidden movement games where a player goes, you got me, and everyone screams. But apparently, I've not played it with two or three players, (laughs) apparently with two or three players, that just doesn't happen at all. (laughs) Um, Tom, you were lucky enough to play this with uh, three players, is that right?
0: yeah lucky is definitely not the right word Uh, (laughs) it was it's what you were saying like it's one of the things that i thought was was really interesting with the with the whole four player thing and with when you know when you saying that no one knows where anyone else is something that i think's important to mention is that if you're a student and you do an attack aimed at the the monster right and the monster isn't in that space but a fellow student is the student that you're like that student takes damage yes so not only is it like you can't you don't know where the monster is because you don't know where the other students are you're in danger of hitting your teammates and one of the most telling things in you know we had a few moments of this in our three-player game was when i went like uh i think in one of them i went i'm gonna attack this space and then the person i was playing it with who was on the student team looked at me and went no don't (laughs) and i was like oh and then matt who was playing the monster just looks up and goes oh i see (laughs) and it's like it just is huge like information and and everything's you know it's so i was so excited to play it because every attack is so heavy with like it's such a risk because in a game where no one can see anyone like playing one card is just it's a huge flood of information into the space but with three it's like those interactions where you might be in the same space as a player or where you're you know those coordinations are unbelievable like shockingly rare they just don't happen
1: yeah oh and of course in a four-player game the map is just the right it's almost like you know the game might have benefited more from a smaller map or something but it has this one beautiful board that doesn't get any smaller for less players so but no your your instinct is correct in a four-player game those moments where like the students not knowing where their other teammates were and constantly being afraid of hitting one another Mm. really powered the game
0: yeah and it's been kind of completely it's that's out of the three-player game because you're you're know you know, you're, there's only one factor you're worried about and normally you start far enough away that you're not worried about i mean you you probably are going to try and start far enough away that that you're not going to be in any risk of hitting each other anytime soon and once you give away information you're like oh i can keep track of one player but when it becomes multiple friendlies that you've got to keep track of i think that might be the bite point where it becomes too difficult to keep in your head all at once and the risk of hitting someone on your team becomes more likely right
1: yeah, I think also there's um, one of the reasons it works with four is because of all of the complicated uh, work the game does to balance this very interesting social dynamic where I would say in a four player game, the anomaly feels very, very powerful and very, very scary for about 75% of the time.
0: Mm.
1: And, but in a, when you've got a whole team of friends who you are sharing that experience with, that's kind of fun for your whole team, you know, because you, ha- you can share that fear and share that, that annoyance that the anomaly got away again. Um, whereas if you've got, if you're playing with two or three, the strength of the anomaly and the way it holds all the cards, you know, if I'm getting pummeled by someone in a two player game, that's not fun. But if my team of people is getting pummeled by a, a, a creature, then that becomes more sort of more acceptable and more interesting. Although I should also say that the game does this, this I mean, again, I've only played it with four, but with four, <laughs> um, the game has this lovely pivot where the anomaly will go from being so scary to just absolutely, um... What's the word? Um, the opposite of empowered. Disempowered. Great. Thanks, spooked. Brain. Spooked. Yeah, the anomaly will get absolutely spooked. And you have these <laughs> brief, beautiful moments where for a few minutes, the anomaly that's been terrorizing you for half an hour is now like, oh, I'm screwed. You put, Wait, I can't go there. I can't go there. I can't, oh, no. <laughs> and then students, you know, hit it with stun batons until it dies. It's... Um, yeah this is definitely the most sort of diverse attitude towards a game that you and i have had because i had a great time with it and you had a bad Mm. time
0: but there's i also feel like anyone i mean it's you know bgg has collectively decided that it's it's literally exclusively a four player game and that Mm -hmm. you shouldn't play it with any other number so i feel somewhat validated but i was also worried about having any like strong opinions on anomaly because In the first game we played, it wasn't great. But in the second game, I think I kind of ruined it by being a terrible monster. Oh, Uh, really? I was, I I think I was just really, like it fell apart so quickly because I was just so bad at the game. But I don't know whether I was bad or whether the people I were playing with were just exceptionally good at the game. That's like a, a hard thing to kind of pin down. But there's kind of little, there's few safety nets to get the monster out of, trouble if you slip up and there's that feeling of like being kind of disempowered as the monster came very quickly in that game because in other hidden movement games because you can see your opponents as the monster you feel so you have this whole layer of information but as the monster i thought from the very beginning you don't have that power because you don't know where they are either so it's Mm -hmm. a weird double thing when you know my instinct was like, oh, I'm the monster. I'm going to do those powerful thing. But then very quickly realizing that I have no grounds to which, that, to where they are. And because the monster needs to feed every turn, you're giving away more information than the players are. Yes. Which there's a stunted there, me in that game.
1: <laughs> I think there's a line in the manual that, um, You've that became very important to us uh, because we actually played two games. And in the first, you've just reminded me, the monster did very poorly and died and it was a fun game, but it wasn't amazing. And in the second game I said, maybe I'll try being the monster. I read the manual a little bit more, looked for some tips. And there was one very important tip, which is counterintuitive, but the monster shouldn't be attacking the students, I don't think, to begin with. And it's one of the reasons that made me love the game is because it's so cinematic and plays out so obviously in my head. When the game starts, the students are trying to like club the anomaly to death and zap it and shoot it and kill it and shut it down. But what the manual says is like, let this come to you because they'll probably miss. Then you'll get cards and you can use those cards to evolve and give yourself permanent abilities. So um, there's this very subtle arc to it where the monster is supposed to sit back until the students literally hand it the cards with which it's going to use to make the student's life a nightmare.
0: It's telling that I I think, My experience, there's so much that's interesting there that even though I had two quite quite patently negative experiences with the game, I still really want to try it with 4 so those systems can like sing.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, to anyone listening to this, if you are interested by the idea of Anomaly or if you particularly like hidden movement games, I would say, hey, if you can find yourself a copy of Anomaly, buy it, play it with 4 and... Also, I think it's probably a game where the novelty value is very high because the Mm. theme is so strong and it's so full of surprises that, you know, you could happily play a couple of games of it and then maybe sell it on to someone else who would like to try Anomaly. Because I think a lot of people should try this game. I think it's interesting. There you go.
0: So recently a video review went up on the site. I took a look at Thousand-Year-Old Vampire, which I continually in the review kept calling Thousand-Year Vampire, missing out the old, which was quite embarrassing to watch back. Uh, A fantastic solo RPG, a journaling RPG, about being a Thousand-Year-Old Vampire and having... doing terrible things and being awful and forgetting about them. But Quinns, you've been playing some Thousand-Year-Old Vampire off the back of me talking about it on the last podcast
1: that was such a nice introduction to what really happened which is me going to you before the podcast i've been playing thousand year old vampire can i talk to you about it with you please because I, <laughs> I can't talk to anyone about it yes um inspired entirely by um you raving about it in our slack channel i then uh, emailed developer tim hitchens and said can i have a copy <laughs> and he <laughs> said yes or oh, tim hitchman is that it hutchings <laughs> right wow uh <laughs> unbelievable
0: yeah and, so and i'm also getting the mean, name of the game wrong and you're getting the name of the designer this so is like
1: i, I, a I can sham. never i can never remember if it's a feast for odin or the feast for odin uh, or feast for odin um that's my particular um bugbear um but you said as well that all of our coverage of thousand year old vampire has led um tim to be able to make some more donations to black lives matter is that right yes i was
0: gonna put this in the review but i forgot um Tim Hutchings donated after the mention on the podcast, uh, he sold a lot of copies of Thousand Year Vampire and donated all of the proceeds to Black Lives Matter. I think the final figure was one thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars worth of donations. Oh, that's so, so awesome! Just, it's great to know that, like, you know, people are out there doing stuff like that off the back of those sales, which was, well, was
1: lovely. The indie RPG scene has some of the most um, impressive and progressive politics of uh, just about any any anyone in the tabletop scene. I think so. As much as that is amazing, it also doesn't surprise me because they're an amazing community. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I want to talk about my vampire because, uh, so <laughs> now not to like, you know, get competitive, uh, Tom, but there's two reasons why I'm a bigger nerd about this than you. Sure. So first first off, this is like you say, a journaling RPG. I got a notebook for this. Um, <laughs> so I've, I, my vampire is like, you can, I'm going to turn the pages next to the mic, but you know, you can hear this. These are all the many and varied pages of my vampire's adventures, my horrible handwriting. And uh, but not only that, so not only am I doing my journal as a physical journal, um, but I, I, have a, I have a hobby of studying history. So I thought, well, this is a game about living for a thousand <laughs> years, right? So uh, my vampire, who I called uh, Al-Muqadasi, uh, is... Was, his adventure starts in Baghdad in about the year 1000 AD. And I've sort uh-huh. of, the one starting point I had for this character was like, well, okay, what if, you know, in the, sort of born into the golden age of Islam, like what if he just really cares about Baghdad and is a real sort of patriot for the, his city? Because at the time, like in around 1000 AD, Baghdad was the biggest city in the world, according to some historians. Wow. So over the course of my Vampire's 1000 Year History, I thought, hey, every hundred years or so, I can look up what was happening in Baghdad at that time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) so the the funny thing is, so let me tell you, but the funniest thing that's happened in my game is the one big point I had, I was like, that's going to be a big part of my story is the Mongols um, destroyed Baghdad, well not destroyed, but sacked parts of it in 1258 AD. So about 200 Mm -hmm. years into my vampire's history. And Tom, while playing this game, have you ever hit any of those prompts, which are just like a hundred years past?
0: Yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, which really throws you because obviously in the game, in addition to taking, keeping track of your skills and resources and characters and your the, your marks that your vampire has, the characters that you write down are divided into mortal and immortal. So whenever the game says, okay, 100 years pass, you know, uh, describe why, um, it, it also says erase all of the mortals you know. And it's just like, I, I wasn't ready for that, you know <laughs> yeah. I, I had a whole like romance subplot happening oh, and no. now she's toast. yeah oh my goodness. but the thing with the with um, the Mongols coming in was hilarious because I had this whole th- idea in my head that my vampire would fight the Mongols or try and defend them or something, but basically he slept through them. <laughs> Um, oh no <laughs> he fell asleep in his basement for a very long time and uh, and then woke, woke up, up and, and th- was like what the hell happened here <laughs> yeah exactly and uh, so that's where I'm at but yeah I've been having so much fun with it it's been yeah it's it's been really really nice
0: I think that the the prompts go in you know like you're saying where it just goes right wipe out all of your you know your mortals your familiars whatever just in one go is testament to the way that this game treats its prompts and its narratives so is very willing to do a lot to your character in what feels like a short space of time but is really a very long amount of time that gets compressed down for the purposes of telling like this generational story there are threads that kind of like go throughout like so my vampire uh, kenneth who i talked about on the last podcast who was uh eater of children um <laughs> he, the one thread that kind of continued through ken this life was the cannibalism Uh, And towards the end, he claimed a new identity, moved to France and created a restaurant specifically dealing in human flesh and all of his assistants. And that was quite a bloodthirsty
1: story. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it's I think you the thing about your review that I I think is absolutely on the money is how you think because of the prompts that it's a game about, you know, writing down these prompts. You know, a prompt might say, oh, a hunter is now looking for you. What I also love is that you and I probably have got different prompts throughout our adventure, which is which has been, um, so probably we have actually had quite different experiences. But when I was told that a hunter was looking out for me and you have to write like a little sentence or a paragraph about that, you know, you you do that and you have this idea in your head that you're get, that you're this is going to be the beginning of an adventure. You're going to have a nemesis, you know, stuff's going to happen. Mm. But the thing your review says that's so true is it's not about that. It's a game that's all about forgetting. It's a game about not yeah. resolving these threads. And that's why writing in a physical notebook has been really fun for me because I've got this big black marker. And whenever I run out <laughs> of memories... I physically censor stuff that my oh, character wow. has forgotten. That's so of most of
0: satisfying my- and depressing in equal it's, measure.
1: It's the best. I'm only going to spoil this because I think statistically most players won't encounter it because it's only one prompt and it's quite late. But um, the way that you prevent yourself from erasing your past journals as your vampire forgets is by storing it in a diary. You mentioned this in the review. <laughs> but did you get the... Pro- get- so my character had a diary. It's this leather-bound book. But... Um, And what have I got here? It's like, it's mostly about his father who he's trying to remember because he doesn't want to forget his father. He doesn't want to forget his best friend. um, He doesn't want to forget the family he once had. Um, But then I got an amazing prompt, which was (laughs) flip to the first page of your, your diary is damaged. Right. Flip to the first page of your diary and erase three nouns from it. Oh, Um, wow. It's so so good. good. So you're like, you know, my diary reads like, "Um, I am Al-Makadassi, son of Al-Bakir, a Baghdadi trader of blank. (laughs) <laughs> we live oh, alive, oh my goodness you know uh, and then the next entry in 1045 is i am alma to see a snake who devoured his own blank i live in the dark <laughs> with blank who loves and fears me he tends to the goats for me oh my uh, goodness it's it's it was like that it's that was so that was the high point in the game for me it was it was censoring parts but not all of my own diary i think an,
0: similarly a, a kind of experience that was one of those like one of the because some of the prompts are relatively straightforward. They're like, create a new thing, destroy this, like, pass some time. And, and there's there's prompts that, I mean, I don't want to use the word, like, trad or anything, because this game is far from that. But there are some really, like, extra spicy prompts that are littered throughout. And my favorite one was, um, fabricate an experience you believe to be true.
1: oh i saw that in your review (laughs) yeah i didn't get that one
0: yeah so in 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 reality you know my vampire had this rivalry with another immortal called Sajon, who he had this duel with and kenneth remembers it as being an absolute triumph where he completely (laughs) battered sarjon what really happened well he doesn't remember but it wasn't good
1: (laughs) oh wow oh it's so good yeah it's 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 kind of quite good at simulating the messiness, not of a vampire's life, but of real life, isn't it? It's yeah. like it's my, my vampire's sort of destroyed and inked over book. It's like so full of like, I met this person, they're going to be cool. <laughs> so like never covered again, <laughs> you know, it's it, which ordinarily would be, you know, kind of sloppy for an RPG. Because the thing I always try and do if I'm like playing D&D is you know you tie up the threads you know you finish the adventure and npcs npcs have to have arcs you know all that stuff Mm -hmm. whereas this is just the opposite it's just so scrappy and messy and that has a charm all of its own yeah it it does a a wonderful
0: thing where because often you know like you might in a lot of rpgs you might struggle with the sort of yes and impulse and it can only go so far and thousand year vampire will let you get you know one yes and in and then be like right and now that character's dead move on so you yeah. get your like nice moment of a little bit of storytelling and then it's gone, which is feels sad for a bit. But then you're like, you know, I probably wasn't creative enough to finish that storyline anyway. I'm, gl- <laughs> I'm glad it's out of the picture.
1: You know, there's a, um, uh, a script writing uh, trick, which is like super basic. But they say that when you write a script for a movie or a TV series, you can make it better by removing the beginning and end of every single scene you've written. Right. So, you know, ev- which supposedly is what happened if you've seen um, oh, what was that? Was it Drive? That the, the what who was in Drive, the movie? Uh
0: that was it's, it's a Nicholas winning Refn film, isn't it, with uh Brian yes. Gosling and Yes, and...
1: no, no, that is the movie I'm thinking of. Yeah. So supposedly yeah. there was a thing with Drive where they had the finished edit and Ryan Gosling and the and the director were in the editing suite and being like, This movie's bad. What if we removed <laughs> all the dialogue? And uh, oh so they the the reason Drive is such a peculiar movie to watch is because there are lots of scenes which had dialogue between the characters, but what that scene ends up being in the movie is that scene with all of the dialogue edited out so it's just like ryan gosling leaning against a wall you know and that's it (laughs) um so but then thousand year old vampire kind of does something similar where like so for example hang on let me find the exact page in my book assuming my character hasn't forgotten it yet which uh he might have it makes uh
0: reviewing the game very difficult when you like oh yeah i told this great story i don't remember it though because my vampire just has a brain like a sieve (laughs)
1: so this happened in 1185 Uh, i got a prompt which was your vampire ends up being stuck somewhere out in the daylight and has to shelter and while sheltering they meet a child what does your character learn from the child what you know what does your character remember about the beauty of life and so you know i've got this i had this thread where basically i took the girl home as my own daughter because i wanted to have that experience of child rearing And then I've got a a document that says, in 1187, uh, sunlight plays across the water in my courtyard as I watch Tisha play. Uh, This is when I am lost in reverie. I cannot be a thing of darkness, can I? And I thought that plot line would continue on, but in the comparison I'm making with scripts, that was the last prompt the game ever gave me about that. And then I sort of noticed idly that like 40 or 50 years had passed, which leaves this horrible question mark of like, where is that girl? You know, what what happened to my family? And, you know... (laughs) In that, in the style of, you know, there's a writing trick of, like, write around a problem or an issue, don't mm. cover it directly. It, it's it's kind of way more nauseating that my vampire thought, Ah, oh, raising this child is beautiful, but somehow didn't find it important enough to remember what happened to the child next. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Oh, s- uh, sorry. No, <laughs> that's on. it.
1: That's all I had to say about my dead <laughs> daughter.
0: <laughs> what a fitting end to the talk of Thousand Year Vampire that slowly tails off into,
1: like, ambient sadness about
0: the people we forgot along the
1: way <laughs> well i only feel now bad because i'm still because i didn't have to review this for shut up and still i'm just having fun as a fan what's mm. your relationship to the game like now you actually had to sort of play it because this is kind of a casual game you know i play it i pop open my notebook maybe once every mm. couple of days roll a few dice do a few prompts what's your relationship to it now that you've done the review
0: i cut a lot from the review and one of the things i cut out was a comparison between thousand year old vampire and a movie called uh, a ghost story um, a ghost story is an a24 movie about someone who dies and then watches life pass by in increasingly faster and faster stretches of time so it starts off being like you know he dies and he watches you know the the house for the next 10 minutes and by the end he's watching time go by in centuries at a time uh in between like blinks of his ghost eyes right and that movie is a movie that I adore and I love so much. But after uh, writing, after not only writing a load of essays about it during university, uh. watching it a couple times, I never want to watch it again. But it's a beautiful piece of art that I want other people to experience once. Right. Yeah. Because, well, I mean, I don't really want to watch that movie again because it's quite traumatic and incredibly beautiful but in a very sad way and i want to talk about all this in relation to thousand-year-old vampire because they're both films concerned with memory and time kind of like whipping past like you know trees out of a car window you know it's it's mm-hmm. that kind of imagery but i don't want to revisit 1000 year Old vampire again because it's now kind of forever it's weird with with games in general once you review them you don't like I, I reviewed watergate and thought it was fantastic and was like this is a great game haven't played it since because once you've spent so long working on talking about why something's good you it's it feels like my i know why it's good now and i don't need to go back to it i know that I, sounds really strange but. i
1: know I, I totally get it i think there's a lot of very complicated subtle feelings and um, one of the reasons that i feel uh ad, an aversion to going back to play games that i've reviewed is because in the back of my mind, especially as shut up and sit down and it reaches more and more people, um, mm. I become afraid, what if I'm wrong? Like, yeah. it, what, if, what if I like this game or I thought it was good or I gave it a glowing review? And then what if I play it now and, <clears throat> and don't like it as much or notice things that are wrong with it? And the answer is, that doesn't, if that were to happen, that doesn't invalidate the review because the review is a snapshot of how I felt at that time, yes. which, is, yeah. which cannot be factually wrong unless I misread my own emotions. But it does change <laughs> how I see my own work. If I had to give a game a glowing review and then play it later, I'm like, oh, this isn't that good. It makes me retroactively feel that I failed to do my job well at the time, which is, you know, arguably not true or irrelevant. But yeah, there's something where a review will, or can, warp your relationship to a thing.
0: No, totally. But like, on the top of that, like, I found this very strange thing with Thousand Year of Empire because it's an RPG. And because I'm quite new to the channel as uh, a voice in general, watching lots of people buy the game or say they've bought the game on my recommendation is this immensely like oh no what if i'm wrong and what if you don't like it
1: you know every time it happens all the time you'll get this that when conventions are allowed again um (laughs) when we go to conventions when people meet you and often one of their openers is oh i bought this game i bought you know Mm. uh, ethnos on your recommendation and that for them is like a warm opener. But for me, it immediately makes me go, and my heart like shrinks because yeah. then I oh, have did to you ask, like it? Yeah. did you like it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then they'll be like, oh yeah, it's great. And then I go, ah <sighs> because you know you, this is what's difficult about board games i can recommend a movie and it's just a movie but if i recommend mm. a board game then you spent 30 quid or 40 quid yes. you invite your friends over right it right. might be rubbish you
0: know and there's something that i'm kind of confident of, the fact that because there's not that having your friends over aspect for, you know oh sure it's an said this was good you're not disappointing four people at once it's just gonna be one person <laughs> which is, but the the like The other thing that is weird about Thousand Year Vampire is because it's creative writing, and because my degree for you know four well, three and a half years, and now my job is creative writing, I definitely felt burnout towards the end of writing in Thousand Year Vampire. And now, retroactively, I'm worried that like people are gonna start playing the game and not get that into it because it is ultimately it can be kind of taxing to think creatively. Initially, my Idea was that I was gonna sort of sit for half an hour before bed and just do a a little bit of my vampire's journey. But increasingly, I was finding it like kind of exhausting to just keep up a creative writing thread and while writing the review for this and another game, which we'll talk about in a bit. But it's it's a weird feeling.
1: I mean, it's extra silly because the manual of a thousand year old vampire does specifically. All the examples it gives you for what the prompts you should be writing are, are like two sentences. But mm. you probably did the same thing I did where you wrote like a florid paragraph. For yeah, you want to write more. But actually, as much as usually I really dislike having to do creative things um, kind of for relaxation because it's so much of my job. So I totally get it. I've actually been enjoying Thousand Year Old Vampire because it's writing that I know no one else will ever read. Yes, So. Sure. I don't hold myself to a standard. I, I think my first few entries were nerve-wracking and I wrote like these vaunted things that actually weren't even mechanically very good because <laughs> if you describe too much around the prompt then it starts to muddy the game's memory thing because as yeah. long as because basically if I describe my whole life in a prompt then as long as that prompt's there, my vampire kind of doesn't forget everything because they know everything about who they are. Right. anyway but for me once I sort of broke through that it was really liberating to be doing creative writing not like for national novel writing month where I have to actually expect people to write it not even blogging (laughs) where I'm afraid that 50 people are going to read what I say no one's going to read it which for me was liberating which is an unusual feeling for me
0: no absolutely like I think that my experience going into it was like oh is this going to be as stressful as like writing uh, scenarios for like Dungeons and Dragons or something or like other similar like TTRPG systems where it's like Your writing is going to be put in front of players, and you don't want to get kind of earnest. You want to keep things kind of light. You can't like invent fantasy names because someone might go, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? And like the Thousand Year Vampire, like, takes away all of that you're just sitting there and you get to be as kind of earnest as you want to be or as silly as you want to be and make things really ridiculous
1: it's interesting to me though that even though you know you can say that you can agree with me but you did just say you found it stressful you did just say it still felt like the same kind of creative writing which i think is does that maybe say that like your harshest critic is yourself and you know
0: <laughs> perhaps but also i mean obviously there was the fact that that whatever i was writing a thousand year Old vampire when i when it dawned on me that i was gonna have to review it it was like oh like now all the creative writing that i'm putting into this book is going to be put into a video review and oh. now people might go god that's stupid and that right. whole
1: feeling comes back over me again right i don't remember I, I watched the review yesterday there's could i freeze frame it and read your actual entries no that i i did it all on a laptop but the whole there's like a
0: little story bit where i talk about kenneth and there's you know that, oh, right, that sort yeah. of part of the video and i have to relay those events and maybe it's not in the same writing but ultimately it still brings up those feelings of like will someone look at this and think that i was taking it in a kind of a direction that was too silly or is someone going to think oh it's a bit trad or, or whatever so yeah, it, there's yeah. still a pressure i think but yeah you're very right i mean i i <laughs> Um, that review the Thousand Year of Vampire review took me for quite a short review took me an awful long time because I think that I do get very perfectionist about stuff and we've talked about this you know uh, on Slack and stuff where I think that I've with creating content for this channel. I think there's an element of me wanting to be perfectionist and uphold a standard that the rest of the channel does, but I don't quite have the tool set to get there. So it's a uniquely nerve-wracking experience to then have creative writing
1: piled on top of that <laughs> as well. <laughs> oh, um, goodness gracious. Well, I mean, you know, certainly people listen to this, leave a comment telling Tom to to chill Tom. out. Please like, do, I mean, <laughs> please do. Let's see, let's see who they listen to. Um, <laughs> either there's gonna be deafening silence or at least six <laughs> comments. Uh no this is it's it's a really unenviable situation you find yourself in but i mean definitely our whole team thinks you've been performing absolutely brilliantly. Woo! Uh,
0: this is it was just bait. It was just bait for validation. This whole speaking, uh, this whole chat.
1: Speaking of uh, your you performing brilliantly, let's talk about the game that got cut out of your review cuz
0: it wasn't good enough.
1: In the review. <laughs> yes.
0: Um so i really do want i really want to talk about the artifact because i think artifact Uh, so artifact is another solo rpg journaling kind of game uh in a similar vein to thousand year vampire and originally the review was going to put them both next to each other and i was also going to talk about a couple of other pieces of media in relation to that the original edit for the review was like 28 minutes long and the i think that the stuff that i recorded for artifact was almost a victim of my general lack of energy for creative writing after the pressure of doing it for a review if that makes sense sure um artifact is just as wonderful a game as thousand year old vampire uh in a very different way
1: so first things first uh, we're gonna have this written down in the podcast description but how can people buy artifact because thousand year old vampire is available as a pdf and as a physical book
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure what the status is. Uh, well, I'll put a link, I'll put an edit or whatever uh, to where you can buy Artifacts. I think it's a wonderful game that deserves support. Um, it was originally kickstarted. I don't, I'm sure there are ways to get physical copies still. You can also get it as a PDF and a play kit and all that kind of stuff. I originally played it a little bit uh, as a PDF and it works wonderfully because most of the game is to do with drawing a thing and making kind of annotations to that. But it also, the, the lovely little zine that it comes in made on very nice recycled paper with some gold foil on it. Ooh, la, la. Mm is a wonderful little thing to have as well it's very dinky and sweet um but it's i should probably outline what artifact is before i go into v- various kind of nebulous topics about why i didn't end up reviewing it but also why it's <laughs> great you know yeah, that's
1: that sounds good yeah okay
0: so artifact is a solo journaling rpg where you are not playing as a person you are playing as an object uh, you will create uh, a kind of tool of some kind there's sort of some trad fantasy where you can be like a sword or a shield or a mage staff but then there's some weird categories where you can play as an instrument or an automaton or a deck which is a really interesting one for interpretation uh you create this the, the item you'll say how it's made and then you'll kind of journey with it through time new people called keepers will pick it up and you'll talk about what those keepers did with the item and how it kind of lived out this story And then you'll have these segments where it goes to, I think it's called victories and valor or dust and rust and all these other things where the item Mm. ages and you'll annotate the drawing that you've done of the item. Um, I actually mentioned in the in the now cut review, um, that there's a whole lovely thing where I think that a lot of people when I talked about the quiet year were put off by the idea of drawing in, in their games, the artifact kind of foregrounds this fact that you can just do a little pencil sketch and it can be rubbish the point is the writing not the drawing but i found that i would draw something and then ink it at the end when it had all of its new little bits and bobs added to it over the course of the tale because it will get modified as time goes on but the thing that i think is most fascinating and enjoyable and the thing that i really wanted to talk about and also made the video kind of weird in artifact was the fact that the last thing you do after each the game is like three ages and after every age you will rest and the resting in this game is literally just resting. You will decide how long you want your item to rest for, which will be, you know, five minutes. It's like got different categories. It goes from like 10 minutes to 100 years or something. You go to a website that has a soundtrack and you will play which song corresponds to the amount of time you are resting. And you will sit and just listen to that. And then you'll resume the game. And like... Wow. I think that it is honestly my favorite thing about Artifact is the rest. Firstly, because the soundtrack is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the music that's in there reminds me of like, um, this is a great album by Ernest Hood that just came out that's really wonderful, or like uh, the instrumental ends of like Jim Guthrie or the KLF or like um, like Oris or someone like this, really great ambient kind of music that incorporates nature sounds into the music. And I found myself like, this is the greatest compliment I can give it that I actually just listened to the entire soundtrack at my computer because I found the music so beautiful. It's not one of these things where the music is like a little side note where it's like, oh yeah, and also you can listen along and blah, 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 blah. My friend's band did the soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah, right? And it's not like, you know, like, like, it's as far from kind of like, kind of whatever trad board game music is th- then you can get it's really quite something i would encourage that people check out this game if just for the music i think it's wonderful. wow
1: so hang on this is now a solo rpg that involves drawing and some writing at, well mostly writing and <laughs> resting and music
0: yes it <laughs> does a little bit of everything but that resting so the thing that i wanted to get across in in the the x review was that the resting is such a wonderful like mental health balm for 2020. Like it's such a busy, horrible year to be in and taking time to just sit in a space that isn't, you know, you're not just sitting and thinking because meditating is tricky. Like the idea of mindfulness and emptying your mind of kind of thoughts is so hard, especially right now. You know, it's a noble goal to achieve but it's difficult. But Artifact, by pushing you into thinking about a game in a fantasy world, and when you're resting, you're thinking about the game, it kind of locks you into a space where you're almost forced to be mindful because you're thinking about something that ultimately doesn't matter, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, no, it's
0: it's lovely. I, I, and I tried to get across this tone of kind of more relaxed talking in the review that just came across as me being like, yeah, I guess it's okay. When I was trying to be sort of like, it's really nice.
1: <laughs> There's a, um, a line we used to say in like Shut Up and Sit Downs uh, earlier years, which um, I've had cause to remember again because I was writing a review. Something relevant but you know sometimes a board game even a multiplayer board game it's really just a, 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 an excuse to sit down with people you love and yes. you know we so often think about the highs and the drama and the emotions that come from board games but I mean certainly it's very prevalent in solo RPGs but it's easy to forget how much of this hobby is about you know the relaxation and it's about silence and it's about mindfulness and it's about yeah coming up with ways that we can stop and focus on something small in a society which is constantly moving faster and demanding more of us
0: yeah it's it's the secret like trick of of a really dense heady euro game right yeah is that like everyone wants to talk about like how deep the mechanics are and how interlocking and how puzzly it is but but really like there's something beautiful at the core which is just that you can sit with i think matt said it recently where one of the things that he likes most about those games is that you can sit with people even if you don't have the energy to necessarily be upholding a constant babbly conversation with those people
1: yeah there's all kinds of little secrets like this in board games Um, a few years ago i uh, played a game called herbaceous which is a card game and it's absolutely gorgeous um it's about planting little things in a little garden or little pots but um it's a card (laughs) game where you do not hold cards as in there's a big deck of cards and uh and they come out but no one actually holds them at any point Mm. as you would expect in a normal card game and that experience taught me that for me, probably about ninety-seven percent of the fun in a card game is holding a hand of cards, <laughs> um, and without that, I was just like, "What are we doing? This is a farce." Um,
0: <laughs> the curtain but, has kn- been pulled back. Yeah, I just <laughs> your y- you hobby's know, a sham. <laughs> this
1: is what keeps me interested in you know tabletop, and you know for coming up on a decade now is like, it's not even. There's so much about it that's exci- it's, that's exciting. But what's really pleasurable about it is not that exciting stuff. It's all of the secret stuff that the games mm. trick you into doing without advertising it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it, and going you know, back to Artifact, that wasn't even something that I necessarily thought would be my highlight of the game, was the rest. I was like, oh yeah, it's got rest in air, blah, 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 blah. Kind of breezing past it in, in the rules. But then it became like emblematic of my entire experience with the game. Because in that space, when you're not reading a prompt and writing and you actually have time to think, you come up with the most creative of ideas you come with the you know your imagination has chance to run wild rather than you're looking at the book you're looking at the prompt on the page and your pen is ready to write and you're like what do i write now by saying take a step away think about it and then come back to it is just like it's great it's a wonderful like mindful little tool that they've put in the game
1: exactly um, uh no I couldn't agree more uh we should wrap this up because my room is that like i can now see a sunbeam that's that's creeping <laughs> across the room towards me like, like a
0: like a sniper's uh like dot it's gonna go right onto the front of your head and just burn through your brain exactly
1: instantly. that or that you know the the scene in dr no with the laser sliding towards uh, <laughs> except rather than being tied to a metal table i'm just sat next to a, uh, my microphone and cannot move uh this has been an absolute pleasure tom uh thank you so much for uh jumping on the podcast and indulging me talking about uh my uh horrible arabic vampire uh,
0: (laughs) no problem
1: (laughs) thank you well and thank you everybody for listening uh do we have anything we're picking up on on the stream at the minute uh, we... actually next oh wait
0: this week we will have had no streams we're taking a week out of streams but the week after you can catch mothership on thursday which will be uh, an rpg adventure it is ridiculous fun uh, also lightly horrifying um each one of us on the podcast has uh, not on the podcast on the stream has kind of described it being sort of like a tonic to the week it's like this lovely uplifting thing that happens but it is also kind of dark and horrible the last thing that happened in the last scenario was a pretty brutal murder um so uh thursdays uh all the streams are 3 p.m bst tuesdays and thursdays but this week we wouldn't have had any but next week mothership on thursday don't know what's happening on tuesday maybe some more Gloomhaven. we'll see
1: well i've got that's i i mean i'm just sat here thinking about all the board games i'm gonna play very soon thank you very much for listening everybody tom been a delight i'm now going to escape the sun good plan bye
0: bye